Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, this is Matt Rogers. And this is Bowen Yang. In a world that sometimes feels uncertain, where communities can be disconnected, there are beacons of hope in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network. They believe that the people living all around you are your best bet at creating meaningful social bonds and preparing you for the next big weather event. Whether it's lending a helping hand to a neighbor in need or standing together in times of natural disaster, Neighbor to Neighbor empowers you to grow your community. Visit caneighbors.com to learn how you can help build a more Connected community. Hi, this is Matt Rogers. And this is Bowen Yang. In a world that sometimes feels uncertain, where communities can be disconnected, there are beacons of hope in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network. They believe that the people living all around you are your best bet at creating meaningful social bonds and preparing you for the next big weather event. Whether it's lending a helping hand to a neighbor in need or standing together in times of natural disaster, Neighbor to Neighbor empowers you to grow your community. Visit caneighbors.com to learn how you can help build a more connected community. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and my guests today are Millie Taylor and Adam Rush, the authors of a very interesting new book titled Musical Theater Histories, Expanding the Narrative. Musical theater is often perceived as being either a Broadway-based art form or as having separate histories in London and New York. This new book, however, presents the musical as neither American nor British, but also both of those and more. Through their use of multiple thematic histories, Millie and Adam take readers on a series of journeys that includes the art form's European and American origins, African-American influences, discussions centering on diversity, national identity, and the globalization of the musical, as well as revivals, censorship, and the relationship of social media to the musical in the 21st century. As you can hear, all of that intersects very directly with the focus and subject matter of this podcast, so I was, of course, very captivated by the book and very eager to sit down with Millie and Adam and learn more about their unique and fascinating approach to musical theater history. Adam Rush is a senior lecturer in musical theater at the University of Winchester in the UK, and his research has been published in Studies in Musical Theater and several other edited collections. Millie Taylor began her career as a freelance music director and for almost 20 years toured the UK and Europe with a variety of musicals, including West Side Story, Little Shop of Horrors, Rocky Horror Show, and Sweeney Todd. She is now professor of musical theater at the University of Winchester and special professor of the musical at the University of Amsterdam. She is author, co-author, or editor of seven books, including British Pantomime Performance and Singing for Musicals, A Practical Guide. 
As always, this podcast is made possible in part through the generous support of our patrons, including producer-level patron Tracy Wellens. If you would like to help support the work of Broadway Nation, I'll have information at the end of the episode about how you too can become a patron. Here we go. Welcome, Millie Taylor and Adam Rush to Broadway Nation. It's my great pleasure to have you here today to talk about your new book, Musical Theater Histories, Expanding the Narrative. Hi. Nice to see you. So great to have you. You know, in many similar ways to what I do on this podcast, your book relates the history of the Broadway musical, and in this case, you give equal emphasis to the British musical theater, both from their origins and their precursors right up to today, and also very much aligned with what I do. Throughout the book, you emphasize the contributions of BIPOC and other artists from marginalized groups that are too often left out of that story. However, what's really interesting and I found fascinating as I was reading the book, was that you've chosen not to tell that story chronologically, but rather through a series of what you call multiple histories. What was it that led you to that approach rather than the standard approach? Well, I think there were a number of things. I mean, first of all, as a Brit engaging in a musical theatre form that Americans regard as theirs, we wanted to make an intervention that allowed the history that is transatlantic and international national to emerge. But also, we were very aware that whenever you tell that canonic narrative of musical theatre that we begin the book with, that it's so partial, that it's a very small part of the story. And that is almost like the default position that everybody takes. Oh, that's the history of musicals. I've begun working in the Netherlands now, and I'm aware that is the only story that people know. And so it was a combination of awareness of the lack of representation of British musicals, the lack of diversity, and the global context of musicals that meant that what we wanted to do was to actually incorporate a lot of different stories and you can't do that in one story. Yeah I was just going to add that I think that I don't remember how we found the framework actually and the idea that we would add these different lenses but I think one of the things that really interested me and we do address in introduction is that as soon as you apply a different kind of lens or theme or topic to the history the main players and the main and important shows drastically change. There's definitely a section in the introduction that basically says, in every history up until now, Oklahoma is seen as really important. But what if we don't think about the form of the musical, and we don't think about integration, and we don't think about how song, dance, dialogue, and design are combined, and we think about gender, or we think about revivals, then all the main players change. You know, we've offered eight different histories of which the main players, and that includes shows and people, change. But, you know, we could add tons more. We found that every time we started a new chapter, we were kind of starting again. We were writing our own way, our own new histories. One other thing about that is that, of course, what we're still doing, even having written eight histories of musical theatre, we've only written a few of the potential histories. We're hoping that it's a provocation to others to write other stories about musical theatre that tell different histories. And did you have histories that you did not end up including in the book? Obviously, you had limitations on how much you could include in the book. Were there other directions you contemplated going? Not entirely. At one point, some of these were reduced. So, for example, the chapter, the first chapter was at one point two chapters because that seemed like it needed to tell both the story of integration but also the story of concept musicals. And obviously, what became 
name gender duality to diversity actually started out as the sort of more historical or traditional, these are the women, these are the men. And then we realized that that was actually a big problem because, you know, we were just completely leaving out a huge body of important people. And so we put the two together and it became one chapter. It feels like it's very compressed as a result. But at the same time, it doesn't do the thing that we didn't want to do, which was to say, this is a binary. You know, musical theatre exists within a binary. You're confronting the same issue I have in my teaching, which is how do you include everything you want to include in a course or in a book or whatever it is you're dealing with? And I think you did an exemplary job of doing that. But I can imagine the frustration of what do we have to leave out? Speaking of which, I want to understand a little better how this book came about. You were both colleagues at the University of Winchester before you went to Amsterdam, is that correct? Yes. 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 In the introduction, you, you mentioned that the book was developed with and by your BA in musical theater degree students there. Talk about that process. That sounds like an unusual way to write a book. Sure. It had a couple of different origins. So it, we started the book within months, actually, of me joining the university. And Millie had been at, at Winchester for several years. And we were starting and developing and growing a new musical theater course. So it came with that. And we did actually teach the kind of linear history for one year. But we found in many ways we wanted to work out whether this material was going to work and I still teach this material to this day and it in some ways is confusing but every couple of weeks we reset the clock and we try a different approach but I think we took different approaches to working with the students. Uh, one of the things that was always key to us from the start was that it was going to not only be a student-friendly book but it was going to have text boxes and activities and reading and that it was going to be focused for students that they could actually do something with it and it's not just something that sits on the shelf and they sort of dip in if they want to find a particular history that it was going to be hopefully a book that inspired students to be quite active so all of the all of the different tasks for instance in the book were trialed and altered and rewritten because of our first time using them in a classroom we certainly have old lecture powerpoints somewhere that are very similar to these chapters um, <laughs> that then grew and developed but they still grow and develop today Millie I think you were a little bit more active too with Yes, I, I think uh, the, the other thing was that I did very early drafts of mine because we wrote separate chapters and then we swapped them over and reworked them and so on. I gave the students copies of them and whatever they didn't understand, I then needed to explain and I needed therefore to explain it in the book as well. I tested them quite mm -hmm. deliberately on the students to see what they got, what they didn't get, what needed more explanation, what didn't, as well as, you know, using tasks and, you know, sort of experimenting with what appealed to them and what made them engage really with the sorts of debates that we wanted to be having with them. Which ties right into my next question. Do you see this book primarily as a textbook? It's very accessible, I think, to the general readers. How do you view the book? That, exactly that, accessibility. We designed it with and for our first year students because we were already using another book that I'd written some years earlier with somebody else in the second year. And we were aware that when we were teaching history, we were finding lots of different materials from many different places. And in exactly the same way and for all the same reasons we started to write this book as a, a text we'd already done it for the second year students so they were already using a, a book and we wanted something similar because we were finding that we were pulling lots of different materials together and trying to find concise histories on lots of different topics and it's very easy to find for example a whole book that tells the history of the integrated musical but you can't ask students to read a whole book every week so right. we wanted something more concise 
but that covered a range of materials on a topic. I understand those concerns completely, Mm. (laughs) which is why this book will be a great resource. Throughout the book, you include boxes of text that you alluded to a minute ago that focus on concepts that some people might not expect to find in a musical theater history book, such as a section on colonialism or the Jim Crow laws, which again, align so much with what I focus on, which is the way musicals always have reflected and represented our society and the culture wherever they're happening. Why did you think this was important to include these? Why are they there? Well, partly because if we're thinking about this as an English language textbook for around the world, then there is information that people in one country or another simply won't know. So that's part of it. But also there are some theoretical concepts that we wanted very simple explanations for that students could take on board simply so that we could start to engage and explore that concept in relation to the musicals that we're talking about in that chapter. Again, it's it's almost like giving a shorthand version so that you can engage in a more interactive conversation. How does it work, Adam, for you? I would add on to that, and I think it's maybe something that we sometimes take for granted. And I think that our approach to telling of the history of the musical was that it was always rooted in its relationship with cultural context. And, you know, that central idea is to the book, but it's not always the central idea of some publications. There is lots of research out there that tells us the history of the American musical or the British musical, but it's not always tied into the wider cultural or political or social concerns of the time. I mean, we kind of gave ourselves an additional challenge there that was a challenge that we were always going to want to face. We thought it was central to really put these shows in their wider context. And I kind of feel like in many ways, when we talk about the book now, we maybe take that for granted. I feel like it would be a very narrow book if those areas weren't there. And if it was just telling the stories of the shows and of the people. But really, it's about how all of these movements or different things shift because of how the world changed. And so not only do we see, you know, Sondheim pop up in multiple chapters, we also see World War II pop up in multiple chapters because those events and those people are as significant in all sorts of stories. Absolutely. And I thought it was fascinating the way those events affect the British musical and the American musical differently at the same time, you know, simultaneously. You say, I think in the introduction, that the aim of the book is to rethink the telling of the musical theatre primarily as a transatlantic form. Why? Why was that one of your aims? It arose from two different things. One is what I've already said about feeling like the American musical was being talked about separately from the British musical, and then the global music was starting to be discussed. There's an interesting book about producers, for example, that talks about producers in different parts of the world. There's work now on historical touring events and producers. What we were finding was that those stories are beginning to emerge, but they weren't contained anywhere. And so we wanted to, first of all, bring Britain and America together, because I think this absolutely is a form that has popped between our island and your continent, but also in the awareness of the changing globe. We Americans do like to dominate the conversation and see things (laughs) through our own eyes. In the book, you have eight chapters, basically eight histories, eight ways of looking at this history, at this overall history that we're talking about. And if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about each of those individually as we go. Each will go through those chapters, at least briefly. The first chapter is called Putting It Together from Operetta to Poperetta. And I love that you connect these dots. It's something I do as well. I think the operetta often gets left out of a lot of the discussion, partly because in America, and I think rightly so, we tend 
to focus on vaudeville and the review and those elements that really influenced the American musical, perhaps more strongly than they did the British musical. I'm not sure if that's true or not. But we often forget about the core basis, I think, in many ways of the musical theater, which is the operetta. Again, that probably comes from your British perspective on this, because operettas, I think, retain their prominence and their dominance much longer in the UK than they did in the United States. Talk about a little bit about that. How do you see that as a progression from the earliest operettas to what we have on Broadway today? Yes, um, it is slightly different from a British perspective, I think, because as you say, the operetta hung around longer in the UK. It hung around really right through until, I suppose, the early 60s. There were forms that were still very similar to operetta. So we do have a stronger sense of that. But equally, the operetta toured the world, the European operetta. This match should last at least a year, quite a l'amour Paris. He'll say, madame and she, monsieur, quite a l'amour Paris. We're deep in love, I'm bound to say, quite a l'amour Paris. But each will go his own sweet to do with putting that starting point that was much more European in there, not just reclaiming the British space, but also reclaiming the European starting points and putting those alongside all the popular forms that then also emerged in both the UK and US. What we were trying to do was to think of the starting points and the many different starting points that are claimed in histories of the musical theatre and trying to put those all together and demonstrate how it's so hard to talk about a single starting point, a single history, even a single form as the progenitor of something. You know, we had operetta in the title largely because the journey of this chapter goes through to the mega musicals, the operettas. Mm -hmm. But I mean, some people would argue that Rogers and Hammerstein were writing operettas. So, you know, I mean, what is an operetta? We don't actually say that in the book. What we're talking about is just that journey and the journey of what you might call the integrated narrative, the narrative of the integrated book musical. And so we're taking that journey because that's the canonic narrative. And the slant we're putting on it is that it's much more multinational than it often appears to be, even down to the incorporation of Irish heritage, of Jewish heritage and so on, that it is a multinational national story. And I think this chapter is the most traditional in one sense. So Millie's absolutely right that we tried to expand it beyond that traditional narrative and include other voices. But also we knew somewhere that we had to at least acknowledge the typical kind of headliners of often white men from Rosen Hammerstein to Sondheim to Andrew Lloyd Webber and kind of similar key figures. So it wasn't that, you know, we wanted to kind of rewrite history and never acknowledge these key players. But we knew that we kind of had to do and present a chapter, really, that sort of says, this is what most people think of so far. We're adding a little bit more detail here, but then we hit chapter two onwards, where we really start to diversify and find new voices. People talk 
about the progression of integration in the musical, which you also show us, you you demonstrate, but operettas were always integrated to a great extent. Yes, and I think that's one of the things that we're trying to show, that there is this story, this canonic story, that integration began with Oklahoma. And then some people talk about The Black Crook as the first musical, or Showboat as perhaps that was the progenitor, or the princess shows were the progenitor, or whatever. Um, and I think what we were trying to show was that there is actually a, a multiplicity even in that conversation, that there are all those starting points. And you can't ever say this is one starting point. Where do you begin? Well, we actually begin with the Florentine Camerata, because, you know, where do you go back to? We could have gone back to the Greeks, maybe. Because particularly from the Camerata, they, there was an attempt to simplify the relationship between words and text and tell stories, which is really what the integrated musical does. It tries to use music and text to tell stories. And then, obviously, Rodgers and Hammerstein added dance. But dance was already in musicals. It was just that they used it in a, a more integrated way. I was trying to avoid that word and couldn't. <laughs> um, because there is an argument that On Your Toes did too. There are always Absolutely. arguments. And what we want to do is have the arguments rather than saying, this is the rule, this is what happened. The way I often explain it for myself and for my students is that the genius of Rodgers and Hammerstein is that they combine the operetta and the musical comedy. They put them together, and that's what created the musical play or what we just call a musical today. Again, that's maybe an oversimplification, but it's one well, way to sort of bring the threads together. That and their PR. Oh, exactly. That's the show business part of it, is make the show and then make sure people know about it. I'm to shame, it seems, to join the whirling stream. When people ask what bliss is, I simply tell them this is lo, lo, do, do, juju, clo, clo, margo, flu, flu. And when it comes to Broadway Nation will be back right after this quick break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. 
so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make everyday delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Before we leave this chapter, just talk a little bit more about the paparetta. And I always talk about it, at least in America, of this surprising resurgence of the operetta. Because basically, those British Brit hits, if you want to call them that, were very, very similar, almost identical to the classic operettas, except that they have pop elements to the music. Yes, absolutely. And so what changed was, I mean, we don't talk so much about this in the book, but actually another story you could tell is about technology. And technology changed, you know, the, the kind of writing changed, the kind of instrumentation and the kind of voices changed. But they were still telling stories. I mean, Phantom of the Opera is absolutely a classic operetta. It was a resurgence of that, but it was a new voice in operetta and it was a new sound world. In many cases, they were telling new stories. In some cases, they weren't. Phantom of the Opera is 19th century, Les Miserables is 19th century. You have that sort of historical reference that operetta also had. But then, of course, you get the Disney musicals as well which are much more contemporary if you think about it that way but actually they're based on historic folk tales exactly is there anything new under the sun so adam mentioned the second chapter so let's jump to there this is called we are the rhythms that color your song from ragtime to rap this is in some ways at least i find in my teaching one of the most difficult aspects of the musical theater to talk about because you can't talk about it without talking about the minstrel show how did you approach that with your students and in the book how do you approach that subject as being at the center of not just the african american contribution to the musical theater but all musical theater is based in many elements of the minstrel show yes yeah i'm afraid i'm going to dominate this conversation a bit as well cuz i wrote this chapter two will come to Adams in a minute. <laughs> I found this a very difficult chapter to write because it felt to me like it wasn't my story to tell. But at the same time, I felt it important that we tell it because it is so fundamental. So you always have that slight awareness that you're in one sense telling somebody else's story. But nevertheless, I thought it was really important that we did. And it seemed to me that what we were trying to do was give voice 
to stories that hadn't been heard. And this is one of the most important stories that we felt we needed to tell. It moves us away from operetta into the popular forms that infiltrated musical theatre or that were appropriated by musical theatre and that effectively gave it its pop, you know, that became the jazz and the syncopation and the excitement and the rhythm, but they arose from somewhere else. Now, Part of the remit of the book is that all the things we're writing about arose from many different sources. And this is also true of this chapter, that the musics that are the popular music of musical theatre arose from many sources, but there's a power imbalance. And that was the thing that we really wanted to address in this chapter, the idea that music was appropriated from certain sources and that the people who created that music were not always given appropriate recompense or recognition for it. And so it seemed to us it was a really important story to tell. And we tried to tell it through talking about musicals that have been to some extent misunderstood audiences walk out when they see the Scottsboro Boys for example in London I saw people walking out leaving at the interval because it was a show that was using minstrelsy as a form hey 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 look what we got for you come on Tambo, how are you feeling tonight? As fine. But I think that lady in the front row is shocked. She just don't believe what she's seeing. Mr. Tambo, she's just not used to seeing you in those clothes. And I ain't used to seeing her in hers. Hey, hey, I play all kinds of characters. Tambo, he does too. I do. Mean man, king man, white man's our specialty. Even those who know them always knows who is who. Sing along or tell us a joke If you want to, that's all right Hey, 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 join in the merriment Everyone's a menstrual tonight And yet the story it was trying to tell was the fact that those people were misrepresented and they had no voice. And they were telling it using a form of material and a style of performance that arose as part of that very problematic and deeply troubling history. And they're very brave composers and writers who have put that material together. We could all play safe and not address it. But I mean, the story of ragtime absolutely puts that story and that history front and center. And I think it's such an important musical. And there are so many of those important stories that people are beginning to tell. You know, Shuffle Along's another one. It's our history and we have to tell it. In each of these chapters, and I think Ragtime is the one you use in this chapter, you select a musical that sort of embodies what you're going to talk about, that not only is a product of what you're talking about, sort of tells the story of that particular history that you're speaking with. I found that very engaging and also makes it very immediate, especially for people who are immersed in the musical theater canon. You get to dive right into the subject of the chapter with something you know so well. And I think that's also useful for students because it means that what you can do is you can introduce them to a music 
musical, which they have an immediate connection with. And then you can say, now this is why this is a problem. Now let's have a conversation about it. And so it's a way of fully engaging with them in the debate when they've watched the musical and they want to have a conversation about, oh, that performance or that tap dance. And you say, yes, but let's talk about this and let's right. talk about this history. And I think that engages them in a very different way and they become much more involved in the discussions and debates about ethics and morality and so on. And I think that's the experience of reading the book, which is wonderful. There's also a brief piece, an element for me, which makes students realise how much musical theatre as an art form really does reflect the real world and tell really important and significant stories. I was teaching Pacific Overtures today, and it's also used in the book as an example of, you know, it's telling a real world story. All of these shows tell these important stories that totally dismiss the idea that musical theatre is frivolous and tap dancing and jazz hands. And as Amelie says, provide these excellent kind of avenues and ways into really rich historical discussions despite being a Broadway or West End show. Absolutely. I used to flippantly say everything I know about history I learned from Broadway musicals. But it's true. You can learn a lot. As a child, mm -hmm. I learned so much history just from being obsessed with these shows and then finding out what was really going on. Please be sure to join us next time on Broadway Nation when Millie, Adam, and I will return with the second part of our conversation about their fascinating new book, Musical Theater Histories, Expanding the Narrative. Where have I been? How did we change? Caught in this strange new music said Was I away to Just like that tune, simple and clear, I've come to hear new music. Why, why can't you hear the song? His fingers struck those keys and every note says Now here's the information about how you too can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for Broadway Nation. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. That's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. Or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Sarah, we got a son. Sarah, go down. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. You and your music.
Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, this is Will Friedle. In a world that sometimes feels uncertain, where communities can be disconnected, there are beacons of hope in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network. They believe that the people living all around you are your best bet at creating meaningful social bonds and preparing you for the next big weather event. Whether it's lending a helping hand to a neighbor in need or standing together in times of natural disaster, Neighbor to Neighbor empowers you to grow your community. Visit caneighbors.com to learn how you can help build a more connected community. Neighbor to Neighbor. It takes a neighborhood.